Good morning. Welcome to a rainy Sunday at Virtual Stone Creek. At least you won't get wet. I find I'm nervous in a way that I haven't been in years. Often I'm nervous during the zazen before a talk, and then it all settles down. And this time it's because it's so new and different. So I'm a little bit tense. So now with all of us sheltering at home, I wondered what would be relevant. And I turned to something that I had been thinking about for some time, and that's a talk on meaning and purpose. So we tend to live in terms of purpose and productivity. And so much of our productive activity or purposeful activity is cut off. And so we can't know ourselves in terms of our productivity anymore. Nor can we occupy our days with all of this productivity, except through computer and home affairs. And we really need to not identify with our computers. So purpose is, is one of the prime ways to give or create meaning. And productivity should be its handmaiden, but it tends to take over instead. What is this? It actually doesn't look like it. It's a clock. So what's it for? It's for telling time. So now that a thing has a purpose attached to it, it makes what we call sense. It makes sense to us. It's not just an anonymous box. And so purpose and productivity get conflated to our loss because they're quite different. And especially maybe now, maybe always, the differences are, are really important. So productivity is, is a measure. It's a tape measure, a large one. It's a measure of activity, of producing products. And all that prodding, you know, the producing of the products is a, is a focus on things, on making and consuming things, on wanting and yearning for things. And the whole economy relies on us to be good consumers, which is why it's in such trouble now. And it leads to identifying with your productivity or your lack of productivity equally, and equally with the products you live with. We know ourselves and identify ourselves to others through the products we live with. And this is a major source of suffering and alienation. And the focus of being on being productive turns us into tools, making and using the products. And so we become a measure of a measure. It's a thin way to live. I think we all realize this, but I don't think we take it into account enough in our lives. How much we're driven by being productive and by being surrounded by products. And when that's cut off, we're adrift. Who are you when you're not productive in your usual way? And there's an urge to compensate with lots of at-home projects. Has everybody made a list of all the things they can get done while they're at home? Even the New York Times has taken this up about how this is not a good time to be making those lists about how productive you ought to be. Because it's a stressful time and the busyness becomes an added stress upon the other stress. So the message about not stressing yourself over 
list of at-home product projects is a is a good one. But of course, it's the tip of the iceberg. The other ninety percent of the stressless it be derailed from usual activities and the fear the pandemic is up. We fear we are not who we thought we were. And there's financial fear, which is a fear of the future and the fear of illness and death for people near us on the front lines in New York. Now, purpose is uh, deeper than productivity. Purpose is one of the ways we assign uh, or create or identify meaning in our lives. It's what we do this for. So its purpose is a statement of our values. Unfortunately, one of our main purposes in the consumer culture is to be that good consumer and to reassure ourselves through our things that we are safe, that we're loving, that we're valuable. But we have larger purposes that can give aim and direction to our lives. So purposes are vital, but they are easily hijacked. Wanting to be what I'm not and focusing on goals, which by definition are not how things are now. And so they easily become a critique of the present rather than a way to know ourselves. Purpose is valuable when it's deep and wide like a river. When it reminds us and directs us toward what matters most to us. And it's a prime way we figure out what matters. Only don't leave it languishing in the future. Purpose is nourishing when it is about about two things. What I value and how I envision enacting my values now over the course of my life. And purpose has a a large shadow as it easily gets reduced to productivity. And from that, we reduce to being tools ourselves, which all drain the present of its depth and its flavor. And they turn us away from the real present towards something else, presumably better, somewhere else, some other time. In our Zen practice, for example, if we practice for some goal, enlightenment, anyone? Then our present actual life, the only one we have, is about something off stage, a fantasy, an idea of something, but not a reality. So why why then do we live caught up in productivity so much, in unexamined or unreal purposes? Well, we've been trained into it, trained into productivity. And it's true of people everywhere, but it's particularly true in America. It's such a foundational aspect of our whole society that we must be purposeful, productive, productive and busy, hardworking. Meaning includes purpose, but it's, it's bigger. It's the sea that holds the waters of the river of purpose. And if you look hard at what it means to be, or to be you, or to be you now, you find that you have to create meaning. Not all on your own. Politics, philosophy, the Buddha Dharma, Western religions, 
they all, all offer possible narratives of meaning. And so much is inherited. Much of our personality and consciousness drives, impulses are native to us. They're inherited not only from our parents, but from our hominin ancestors, for good and for ill. But it's up to you to create or affirm meaning, to fit it to you or fit and to fit you to it. It takes careful thought and attention. And it can feel uncomfortable to create the shape of meaning in your life. To say, this matters to me, and that, not so much. And to say, and to know why. And then to say, how do I live in terms of this matters? Of course, you don't do it in isolation. There's, we have the Buddha Dharma, your education, your families, your friends, reading, society, they all contribute hugely. Circumstances, as we're all so aware of right now, are a huge factor. Does the circumstances of the pandemic and being both fearful and pressed into staying home, do they change your sense of your purpose of your life or the meaningfulness of being you? Most likely. But at heart, you have some measure of choice about what will be meaningful to you. So meaning and purpose have to contend not only with being uh, at home in the coronavirus pandemic, but also with the end of humanity, the end of the universe, the end of stars and galaxies. The universe is expanding and it will eventually use up or dissipate all its energy. Eventually, there'll be complete dissolution even at the level of protons and neutrons. Now, that's safely in what they say is a 10 trillion, trillion, trillion years. Much sooner, the sun will go out, will extinguish 100 billion years. And life on Earth will likely be gone a very long time before that, because as the sun diminishes, it will become harder and harder to, for creatures to live on Earth. Also, far in the future. But it's true. And does death make life meaningless? as we will all die long before the sun winks out? Does all of this make your life meaningless? Or the opposite, precious, like that sea turtle coming up for air in the middle of the ocean, poking its head up through a wooden, floating wooden ring. That's the classic Buddhist image of the rare preciousness of human life. It is that rare to be born a person. And uh, I came across a beautiful description of how space and time work as a, it was a beautiful statement. And we can find ourselves in this one. So it says, time is no more fixed than the stars. Time speeds and bends around planets and suns. is different in the mountains than in the valleys. And is part of the same fabric as space, which curves and swells as does the sea. Objects whether planets or apples, fall or orbit, not because of a gravitational energy, but because they plummet into the silky folds of space-time. 
into like into ripples on a pond. So that's where we live. And where all this wonder and life and meaning take place is the present, only the present. The present doesn't shrink because our field of vision and of activity shrinks. And so while while purpose focuses on the future, meaning is naturally and inevitably present-based. So our the present does not shrink. The field of meaning does not shrink unless we allow ourselves to be shrunk by shrinking circumstances. And so I found a koan in our Zen treasury about this. A monk inquired of Master Kan Feng, saying, Buddhas in all ten directions have one straight road to nirvana. I wonder where that one road is. And Kan Feng held up her stick, her kotsu, this teaching stick, drew a line in the air and said, here it is. So this koan is the last one in the Mumon Khan, the Gateless Gate, one of our great uh, Zen koan classic treasuries. And Kan Feng was a Chinese Zen master, a disciple of Tongshan. And Tongshan is the first of the Soto line. And so Kan Feng is, is his disciple, one of his disciples. And this koan is very much in the Soto family style, being focused in the present. And of course, in the koan collection, a Kan Feng is a man, and historically, undoubtedly male, uh, since misogyny is ancient, but we're moving to a more truly inclusive Zen. So for today, Kan Feng is a woman. Buddhas in all 10 directions have one straight road to nirvana. I wonder where that road is. So 10 directions are um, all the directions throughout the universe, all of space, all around, up and down in every possible direction, as far as there can be in the universe. And all these Buddhas everywhere have just one straight road to walk. Now, the monk has heard this then accepts it, but he doesn't begin to understand it. And knowing that, he bravely ventures a question. Where could this road be? Where else is there besides now? And since space and time are interdependent, they're the same reality viewed from two different perspectives. If you look at the world in terms of space, we call it interdependence. You look at the world in terms of time, we call it impermanence. It's one world and one reality. This same reality, there's nowhere else, and there's no other time. This is it. This is life. This is reality. It's not just the time of the coronavirus. But the monk is oblivious of that because his head is full of ideas of nirvana and ideas of getting somewhere. He wants earnestly, he's quite sincere, he wants earnestly to know how to go toward nirvana. And what is the road of practice to get there? 
getting there is um, reminds me a whole lot of getting, grasping, and more. So what is nirvana if it's not somewhere else and some other time? So the monk, like most people, imagine that nirvana is a heavenly realm. It must, so it must be somewhere else because this is no heavenly realm. So what then is nirvana? Well, it's not a place. We envision in terms of place because we have these bodies that like to know where they are in space. But it doesn't make nirvana a place or unreal. So I knew it wasn't a place when I was a kid, because when I was a kid growing up in New York City, um, my subway stop was a dusty, bare, concrete and metal platform with a big sign that announced its name, Bliss Street. And there was no Bliss Street. I looked around the neighborhood. There was no Bliss Street. So clearly, this realm of, that they called Bliss was not Nirvana. But nirvana, nirvana is neither a place nor unreal. Nirvana originally means extinguished, like a flame blown out. When the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion are extinguished, that's nirvana. When we extinguish the gap or separation or aversion between ourselves and others, then there's no greed because, there's, because nothing is separate then there is no hatred because nothing is disowned. And there is no delusion because separation is the core delusion. When for however long or short a time, and you see, we get caught right up in measuring. Nirvana doesn't long or short or near or far. When for however a time, we are free from these fires and this prison cell of opposition. That's nirvana. That's peace. But we think, okay, and that's not how I am now. So nirvana or peace must be somewhere else, which right exactly at that moment creates the division, separation, opposition right there. Right there, we create samsara. Samsara is the realm our life of greed, hatred, and delusion. And it is rooted in that artificial division separating me from you. Going back to that sense of getting there, getting to nirvana, getting enlightenment. It's about, that's about more and about not this. Greed, which is more, is necessarily about the future. It's about what is not now that we want. It is not real, except as the deep suffering it causes, the suffering uh, it creates in the present. On the other side, we have there's less is more. Dogen talks about less is more in his very last essay to his monks before he left Eheji to go seek uh, treatment for the illness that killed him while he was away seeking treatment. Less is more is Thoreau's life on Walden Pond. 
and imperfect. You know, Lisa, as I say, he took his laundry home to, for his mother to wash, but he didn't stay there every moment. But he settled himself there and found deep, lifelong lessons in what was there. We don't have to be perfect to do this. Less is more also reminds me of um, the paintings of Agnes Martin, a favorite of mine, who is described as a minimalist. Her paintings are large squares usually with very faint washes of color in pale blue, maybe pale yellow, maybe gray, maybe one or two of those colors and many lines or bands of color, sometimes crossing each other, going across. So people called her minimalist and she said to her last dying breath, no, I'm not a minimalist. I'm a romantic. These are paintings of emotion. But the expression in a less is more form that helped her contain her some ways chaotic life. These uh, Thoreau, Agnes Martin, these are practices of um, vulnerability. Less is more is vulnerability, not control. And in this time of staying put at home, we have notably less control over our lives. We've been controlled to stay home. And I think this less control is a big part of the disorientation people feel, as we usually think we control our lives, and that we make choices and act on them freely. And a lot of that is illusion, but we like to ignore that because we identify with ourselves as these beings of agency. We have agency, but our agency is always limited and shaped by circumstances. It's just now we're especially aware of this. And one of the prime ways we try to exert control is more. Wanting more, striving for more, is an attempt to control our circumstances and our future. It's an attempt to feel safe, but it doesn't work because grasping does not create security. It creates its opposite. It creates the need for even more. It's a self-fulfilling bad prophecy. So Master Confeng takes pity on the monk. She doesn't tell him to get lost or to quit spinning castles in the air. Instead, she answers him very directly. She holds up her stick, draws a line in the air or a line in the air or a line in the air and says, here it is. She said, the line, here it is, not the stick. The line doesn't go anywhere. The line can be a line, what we call a circle, can be an arc. It's a line that is this very moment place. This is the time and place of practice. This is the time and place of awakening. This is the time and place of all life. Now, this doesn't mean ignoring the future or the past. They're both critically important. In fact, if we paid more attention to the past, we might not be in quite such a bad situation in this country in the pandemic, because there have been so many others before. The very word quarantine comes from the 40 days um, uh, seclusion or isolation forced upon uh, some people like 
Turkey of the Near East from one of the plagues. So past and future are critically important, even though we actually can't know either, really. So the mistake we make is that, is that we focus on the past and future so the present is a barely noticed sliver. But the past and future are alive now and only now. Does the past live on its own? No. It's only as we sift and interpret and include it in the present. And the future? The future is alive only now. What we do now is the ground from which the future springs. Rather than sacrificing the present on the altar of an idea of tomorrow, we can make every effort to include past and future in our present. That way, the future is real and juicy and alive. So Confeng draws a line in the air to say, now, here, is where we live, where we practice, where we awaken. Here, now, is where we practice as bodhisattvas concerned about the welfare of all beings. Here, now, is where we love and where we sorrow. Don't get hung up on the line, whether it's a line, a circle, or an arc. They're all lines. So the road to nirvana, the road to nirvana is the road of being fully present to what is here. It's open, it's curious, it's creative, it's the ground under your feet. So nirvana isn't just a state of mind. It's a state of being, a state of body and mind, of heart and reason. It's a state of your hands and your eyes. It's the whole planet right here, since the ground under your feet is the one ground of the whole planet, no separation. We are each, each of us, living in the true world, the world of nirvana as the peace of no separation, no three poisons, all inclusion. We mostly don't know this. We're unaware. But the opportunity to be aware is always right here, not somewhere else. So rather than feeling discouraged at being far from nirvana, Know that you are already here in what Katagiri called Buddha's world and can return home and open your life into this moment and respond to what is here. Moment after moment, forgetting and returning. While I was working on this talk, I had a dream. It was a couple of nights ago. And what I recall, I didn't recall it until I got back to work on the talk the next day. And it came right back to me. I was standing with my arms wide, outstretched, addressing a group, a group of people. On they, In that case, they were real people. They were not faces on the screen. They were you, though. I was standing, addressing a group and saying in a big, happy voice, yes, this, all of this right now is absolute reality. This, how each thing really is in itself, is absolute reality. 
We're all here together. We all belong. We all matter. But by the time I woke up that morning, very early, I was anxious and unhappy, which is what had woken me up at like 4.30 in the morning. I felt constrained, frustrated, and sad. Oh, I said to myself, don't forget to include this side in your talk. So gradually I let myself feel the sadness of the time. And I couldn't help feeling the stress of it. So I spent time with Elska with great gratitude for her company. Having someone nearby is a great gift for those of us who haven't. I got up and I exercised because my body and my body liked that a lot. My body doesn't care about the pandemic. It is not really interested. It wants to move. And then I went back to work on this talk which brought me closer to all of you and closer to the Dharma. So thank you.